For the past couple of weeks, about some of the miracles Jesus has been performing while he was here doing his earthly ministry. And we spent a long time uh, studying through the, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's all continuing down this journey we're calling the journey through the Gospels. And we're examining the life of Jesus and what we can take from it as believers. And we're going to continue down that journey today. Uh, two weeks ago, we learned about the centurion, and he was pleading on behalf of his servant to Jesus for healing. And Jesus said to him, his faith was like no other, his faith was like no other in Israel, and he healed him, not by going there, but just with a word. And last week, God's word taught us about the widow's son who had died, and the, and the mother was grieving. And Jesus comes, comes to her and says, Do not weep. And he looks to the, to the man, and he says, Rise. And the, and the dead man rises. And he hands, his, he hands him over, Jesus hands him over to his mother. And so we've, we've come to where we're at today. And the, and the, and the story of these miracles, the, the word of these miracles spread quickly, just like it would today. If something like that was happening in faraway land, especially with the, uh, the technology advances we have today, it would spread quickly. But it spread by word of mouth quickly then. But that brings us to where we're going to be at today, which is Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 18 through 35. And uh, I've titled this sermon, The Greatest Man's Doubt. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to have two different points. We're going to have John's doubt, and then we're going to have Jesus' response. Uh, I didn't come up with crafty three points or anything like that. We're going to stick to what the Scripture says, and we're going to, we're going to dig deep in it. So let me read that for you this morning. Chapter 18, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 18. The, disciple, the disciples of John reported to him about these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them... To the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind, and he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. Lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense in me. Verse 24 When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among these, those born of women, there is no one greater than John. 
Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice and have been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, having not been baptized by John. Verse 31. To what, shall, to what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The, man, the Son of God has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Verse 35, Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, I pray that you will prepare our hearts for what you have for us this morning, that we will take your word and how to deepen our hearts, we will apply it to our lives, and that you will be made known among the people because of what we learned here today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we start out in verse 18, and we immediately see this man named John. Now, many of you already know that it's John the Baptist because, one, we just read it, and because, two, the little title in your book above verse, in, in your Bible above verse 18 says John the Baptist or something of that nature. But we, uh, we see this John, and we see that he has disciples. And so we really need to take a look at it and say, who is this John. And as we, as we get through the context of this passage, we're going we're gonna to find out that it is, in fact, John the Baptist. And, and we, we know that because of what verse 28 says. It says that John is called the greatest man who ever lived. But we also know from what we've read before and what we've learned that John had a relationship with Jesus. Yes, he was, John was Jesus' cousin, but he was also the forerunner of Christ. And we also know that people would travel from all around into the wilderness to see this man and to hear his message about the one that's coming. But here in verse 18, we have John the Baptist and his disciples are coming to him with a report. And the report is what we've learned for the past two weeks. The report is that people are getting healed, that Jesus is performing these miracles. People are raising from the dead. And I can imagine that that as John's disciples are coming and talking to him and, and reporting these things, they're probably excited. They're probably going, Jesus, look at what John, I mean, John, look what Jesus is doing. He's doing all these wonderful things. But as, verse, as the verses lead on, we see verse 19. Well, let me back up a second. The, the disciples were coming to him to report. We need to take note of that because... John wasn't out there. He wasn't out there in the crowds listening to John. I mean, listening to Jesus. He was not there. If you look at the parallel passage in, in Matthew chapter 11, it says that he was in prison. That's why he wasn't out there. He was in prison. Herod, Herod had thrown him in prison because of his message. John the Baptist confronted Herod about how he was living. And what did he do? What Herod do? He didn't want to change the way he lived. So he threw him in prison to get rid of him. And so 
We note that the disciples are coming to him for the report because he can't go out and see the report himself. And so uh, verse 19 comes and he says, it's summoning two of his disciples. Now we don't know how many disciples were there with him giving him this report. But we do know that he grabs two of them. Now Matthew's account doesn't, doesn't say how many he grabs. He doesn't say how many he summons to send. But, but Luke does. It says that he grabs two of them. Now, that's important because he's not just going to grab one. He needs two because the, the custom during that time was to have two witnesses. So they can collaborate each other's account. And so he grabs the two, and he's, he's going to send them. He says, John sent them to the Lord. And with this question, he sends them to the Lord with this question. And the question is, are you the expected one, or should we look for someone else? Now, this very question that John the Baptist is asking here gives us a little bit of, uh, it gives us a glimpse of what John is going through right now. This is the, the man who was Jesus' cousin, who knew him from birth, who his whole job was to be the forerunner for him. And here we have him summoning his disciples, saying, go ask Jesus if he's the one. And so with this question, we see John with a sense of doubt. We see John with a sense of of wondering if he has spent his whole life as a forerunner of Christ for no reason. And so that's why I've titled the first point, John's Doubt. But to be fair, I think we need to try to take a minute and unpack what doubt means. I think, I think we need to, to look at the meaning of doubt. It's a really a term that we hear a lot. Um, we hear it like, I have no doubt that he does this, or... Um, Without a doubt, I would do that. But what does the term really mean? You can define it as a lack of certainty or um, to be unsure about something. But doubt shows up right here. But this isn't the first time we see doubt. Doubt is woven throughout the pages of Scripture. We see in the beginning with Adam and Eve... We see Satan getting Eve to doubt what God said in the garden. We see, Ab- we see doubt show up with Abraham and Sarah when, when God tells them they're going to have a son. Oh, I'm too old. That can't, that can't happen. We see doubt with Moses. And this is all just in Genesis. We see doubt with Moses when he says, when God says, you're going to lead the, the Israelites through the wilderness. And he, he goes, I, I, can't even, I can't even speak publicly. How am I going to do that? But we also find it in the New Testament as well. We have the apostle known as the Doubting Thomas. We have all the apostles there at the feeding of the 5,000 when they need food and they go and find some fish and some bread and they go, how are you going to do this, Jesus? There's multitudes of people. They're doubting what God can do right there. 
So we can see that it's not an uncommon occurrence. It's something that's, that's in the entire Bible. But there's one aspect of doubt that we find in the New Testament that's important that we, that we understand. The, the concept of doubt in the New Testament is, is always associated with someone who's believing or someone who's a believer. It's always associated, it's not associated necessarily with the task, but it's always associated with something who, who believes. The, uh, the most, the, I guess the biggest one that stands out to me is found in Mark. Uh, the biggest occurrence of, this, of this, uh, this doubt that we can see is in Mark 9, where we have the, the father and the son, who the son is demon-possessed, and uh, he's, he's going through seizures, and he can't control his body, and, and the man uh, is seeking out Jesus, and uh, he says, you know, Jesus, please have pity on me, heal my son. And Jesus replies, all things are possible to those who believe. And then the response of the man, the response of the father, is one where we need to find ourselves whenever we, we come into a case of doubt. The, the man says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And so I think um, when we talk about doubt, we, it's, it's in the Bible, we see it. And right here in this, this, this chapter following two great miracles, we see the greatest man to doubt his whole whole mission. Charles Spurgeon says it well. He says, I do not believe there's a Christian, I'm sorry, I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. And so I think when we see doubt of a man of this magnitude, I think we need to look at some of the factors that could probably bring about this doubt so we can examine ourselves and see if we're going through the same, same things that he might be going through. And I pulled out three, three factors that could influence this, uh, this doubt of John. One of the factors could have been that John has been in prison. He's been in prison for quite some time. Scholars say that he's probably been at prison, could be up to a year at this point. And so it, it began to wear on him. He was set in prison, not being able to see what's going on in the world, hearing about these things from his disciples, and uh, it, begins to, it begins to mess with you. And knowing that he's been in prison for a, a year, and during that time you stay in prison for a year, you know what's coming next. It's a good possibility that you're going to be put to death. There's no, there's no well, well, I served my time. time, time for me to get out. Prison sentences ended in death. So I think that could have been, in, in John's mind during the time, he's, he's been sitting here. He's, he's been in prison for going on several months at least, and just going, I was, I was Jesus' forerunner for me to sit in prison while he performs miracles ultimately to end up dying. That'd be a factor that would influence my doubt. I know that. Another factor could be sheer peer pressure from those around him and the sin influence. Meanwhile, you're sitting in prison. You're not around great people. You're not around, you know, lovely neighbors. You're around people who've killed, 
killed. You're around people who steal all the time. You're around people who lie to you. They tell you whatever you want to hear so they can better themselves. But here we have John sitting in there for months. And he's going, well, maybe they're right. They're telling him, oh, why, why do you believe in that Jesus, man? He's, he's, he's not real. He's fake. He's just like another person. You know, maybe John, John begins to creep in his mind. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I, I have been believing wrong. And I think it's something that we need to take focus on in our lives because whoever we, whoever we surround ourselves with, there's a good possibility we're going to think like them, we're going to be like them. And so we need to guard ourselves against that. Not to say that we shouldn't go out and seek those that are lost and, and try to bring them to Christ, but if you surround yourself by nothing but lost people and you surround yourself by nothing but people who, who never believe in Christ, then that doubt has an has a area in which it can enter your mind, enter your life. So I think that's something we have to guard ourselves for. But the third factor, and the one that I believe is probably the most accurate, would be that John had his own set of expectations for the way the Messiah was going to come and the way he was going to bring about salvation. And Jesus just wasn't quite doing it the way he wanted him to. You know, if you were to listen to John's message, it was a a message of judgment and repentance and, and calling those to believe now because the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, if you were to listen to it today, it would be a hellfire and brimstone message. And then Jesus comes, and he doesn't quite give the judgment that John was expecting. He doesn't quite give the, the condemnation in which John was expecting. And so we, John's sitting there going, man, I really thought he was going to do it this way. Maybe he's not the right one. Maybe I need to ask and see if he's the right one. And just how, how much are we like that? We have our own set of expectations and we want God to do something the exact way we want him to do it. And then when it doesn't happen that way, we get mad. We, we do it all the time. And then, once again, it gives it a little foothold for, for doubt to come into our, our lives. But moving forward, verse 19, you, hear, you see the question. And then you have verse 20. You have the men making it to Jesus. And then they do exactly as they're told. They ask Jesus the question. Are you the one or do we look for someone else? And then that brings us to our our second point, which is Jesus' response. And so for the rest of this uh, several verses, it's all going to be Jesus' response. So from verse, what is it, 20... 22 on down to 35 is all Jesus' response. And this response that Jesus gives the disciples is twofold, really. He, he, he answers the disciples' questions in verse 22, and then the disciples leave, and he turns towards the crowd, and then he, he kind of explains what he just answered to the crowd in verse 24 and following. And so, verse 21, let's look at it. It says, 
I'm sorry, in verse, yeah, 21. At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to the blind. And then he answered them. So we have the, the context of the setting is, you know, the disciples of John just got their marching orders. They made it to, to Jesus. And we have Jesus who's sitting there healing people, you know, all over the place. He's performing miracle after miracle after miracle. I can almost envision him doing miracles, and then the disciples walk up and him going, yeah, what do you need? What do you need? And he's doing these miracles, and then he hears the question. And then I can envision him stopping and looking the, the two disciples in the eyes and giving, him the, giving them the answer. And... Um, Let me see, I lost my spot here. And so we have Jesus doing these miracles, and then we have him stopping what he's doing to, to give the answer. And he says, he says to him, simple, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. Not, not anything more, not anything less. He said the, the blind have received their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have heard the gospel. But then the end of this message is what stands out. Verse 23, he says, Blessed are those who do not take offense in me. Now we've heard that before because we just finished the Sermon on the Mount. That's a beatitude. He's referring back to a beatitude. And you can, uh, you can see, or you could say it, Blessed are, blessed are them who do not stumble over me. That would be a, a way that we could uh, phrase it today. And we, we have Jesus reminding John of his faith when he gives him this reminder of this beatitude. He said, look, John, I'm doing all these things, but remember, don't, don't stumble over me. Don't, don't look at what I'm doing and look at your circumstances and say, you know, maybe I was wrong. He's saying, look past those hardships that you're facing right now and trust in the, in the message that you preached that I was coming. And, and, and the message that you preached that I was going to bring salvation. And rest in that fact that I am the Messiah. That's what he's telling him when he, when he, when he gives him this beatitude. And so from there we have verse 24. And he, and he waits. He, he finishes that answer to the disciples of John. And then he waits unless the disciples leave. And verse, verse 24 says, When the disciples had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. And so now he has more of a, it's, it's more of a private context with the, the answer of the, to the disciples. He gives, he gives John the answer that he needs to hear. And then he takes this opportunity to turn and to explain it to the entire crowd. And, and we'll find out that this crowd is, is filled of people who already really know who John is. They've heard of him. And we'll find that here in a second. But it's also full of Pharisees and lawyers who don't believe and who are looking for a way to nitpick what Jesus is doing and to tear apart his ministry and to ultimately find a way to get him killed. And so we have 24, they have, they've, they've left. And then the second half of 24, we hear, 
when Jesus began to speak to the crowd, he said, What did you go out into the wilderness to do? To see? We have the beginning of what I'm calling Jesus' accommodation to John. He, uh, the second half of this and the, and the majority of 25, we have a series of questions that Jesus asked, and he answers them in a rhetorical fashion. He, he starts off with this question that's, that's kind of the main question that's repeated. He says, why did you go out into the wilderness? And then he, he rhetorically answers, um, did you go to see a, a reed shaken by the wind? He knew that the, the crowd did not go out there to, to observe nature. He knew that there was no reason for them to be out there other than for John the Baptist to hear his message. But he still asked it to make a point. And then he says, well, why did you go out there to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Once again, John was not known for his attire. He was not known for what he wore around to, to meet people in. He, he wore camel hair, a camel hair coat, and then he had a diet of locusts. So he wasn't, he wasn't a, uh, a, I guess you'd say, a well-dressed man. And so the, the, the rhetoricalness of, this, of this, these questions just are proving the fact, even matter, proving the point that Jesus is trying to make that you were out there for a reason. You went to hear John for a reason. And then continuing on, the, the third time he asked the question, in verse 26, he said, what did you go out there to see? And the answer this time is not so rhetorical in nature. He says, a prophet. And then he answers, yes, I say to you, a prophet. And one who is more than a prophet. That is, uh, that is important to the crowd to hear those words because they're waiting on Jesus to hear what Jesus answered that question. They probably heard the, the, the question that uh, the disciples brought. They probably heard the, the doubt of John in that question. And so they were waiting to hear the answer. And so here we, we start to hear this answer explained to the crowd, the, the crowds. And he said, Yes, I say to you, and more, one who's more than a prophet. And then it goes on, it says, This is the one who it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. This is, this is talking about John's, John's job. He was the forerunner. We all know that. But this is all proving to the crowd that you already know this person, and, the, and he is exactly who he says he is. But he also, it's, it's, a, it's a large um, commendation to, to John. He is more than a prophet. Verse 27, it, it's probably stood off in like a block quote in your, in your Bible there. Because he's, he's pulling that prophecy from... Um, Malachi 3, and he says, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. Behold, I'm giving you a forerunner to Christ. And so I can, I can only imagine if that was my job, which it's all our jobs to an extent, 
But John was set apart by God for the main purpose to, to herald Christ as he was coming. Now we are to all share Christ with everyone, but this was John's job. It was his main focus in life was to, to, to bring about the message of Christ and that he was coming. And so these crowds, they, they would go out into the wilderness to hear this message. And then they would come back and say, okay, I, I understand the message. There's, there's somebody coming. I need to be baptized. I need to repent. I need to be baptized. So, so the majority of this crowd was, was listening. They were following along. They understood what Jesus was telling them. But in verse, verse 28, we see that Jesus was not finished yet with his accommodation of, of John. It reads, I say to you, among those born of men, um, born of women, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Could you imagine Christ saying that about you? Could you imagine Christ saying, among all born of women, there's no one greater than you? Wow. That's more than a compliment. But he doesn't stop there. The rest of that verse reads, Yet he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And that kind of throws a, a kink into things. I can, I can kind of see the crowd going, Okay, yeah, yeah, oh, what does that mean? And um, the the purpose in Jesus putting this in here was to to establish the fact that John was right. John was right about the Messiah. He is coming, and because you believed in his message and believed in him, I'm the one he was. I'm the one who he was talking about, and therefore you need to believe in me. And so. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you want to be greater than John the Baptist, one who is greater than anyone born of a woman, you need to believe in me. Then verse 29 goes on and tells us that all the people and the tax collectors heard this, and they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And so everything made sense to them. We went out, we heard John, got baptized by him, we understand it. We're hearing what Jesus make, Jesus is telling us, and that, that makes sense. We get it. But not everyone got it. Verse 30 through 35 is, is more where Jesus takes the... He's, he's given this accommodation to, to John, and then verse 30, 31, 30 through 35, he, he kind of pulls that back and rebukes those who were not listening, weren't, weren't believing. It says the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, having not been baptized from John. So they said, hey, we, we didn't go and hear those messages. We didn't go and get baptized. So obviously this isn't talking about us. We don't need to worry about this. Jesus' message is still wrong. We don't need to, to listen to this. We need to just find a way to shut him up. 
so Jesus continues to teach the crowd. And he, uh, he tells us in verse 31 through 35 what these men are acting like. And I think it's funny that uh, if you were to, John MacArthur has a message on this, these verses right here, and he calls it the parable of the brats. Because that's what they're acting like as we, as we work our way through it. It's a, it's a contrast of these men and the way they were acting in real life to what they were, they were saying. I mean, essentially, these verses read, To what then shall I compare men of this generation? And what are they like? Verse 32 says they're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and say, so it's like children who are bickering back and forth and whiny children who are going, well, I played the fruit for you and you didn't dance. I sang a dirge for you or a funeral song and you didn't cry. So, wah, wah, wah. That's what they're doing here and that's what Jesus is telling them. Because they weren't getting their way and, and they, they weren't doing what they had expected God to do. But it goes further than that. After Jesus established them as children who weren't, who weren't dancing because they were getting the flute played for them or weren't crying because they heard a funeral song, it goes on to say...